In Amana Tena Koto Kato, I'm Simon Shepherd. Welcome to News Hub Nation. First up, Dr. Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to the US President, with his forecast for the future of the pandemic in New Zealand and the world. We ask Minister Carmel Sepuloni whether this week's benefit boost was too little too late. Helen Clark's global view on Fauci, COVID welfare, and China's moves in the Pacific. And Connor Whitten asks National if it's quietly backtracking on its climate commitments. The Marie, first up, the pandemic. To many, he is a hero. To others, a villain. Whatever your viewpoint, COVID-19 has made Dr Anthony Fauci one of the most famous scientists on the planet. He's served under six American presidents and is currently the chief medical advisor to Joe Biden. We spoke with Dr Fauci earlier and asked him what he thought was the biggest mistake the US has made in dealing with the pandemic. Well, that's a very difficult question to ask. When I don't know what you mean by mistake, I mean, there was a lot of evolution over the early months of the outbreak. Uh, and as more information became available, the strategies and the guidelines and the approaches that were taken changed. I think if you look at what we knew six months or more into the outbreak, if we knew that early on, there were things we might have been done differently, like being more restrictive early on in the outbreak. I mean, no one and no country has done things perfectly, that's for sure. But I, I wouldn't use the word mistake. I think it was acting on knowledge that we had at the time when later on we had more accurate knowledge than we modified our approach. OK. What can New Zealand learn, though, uh, from your experience? Because we're battling our first big wave with Omicron right now? Well, one of the things that's really um, important to appreciate is that Omicron, as we all know now and sadly have learned, is very highly transmissible. The one thing we do know, and I, I'm not 100% certain as to what the situation is in New Zealand regarding vaccination percentage and boosting, mm. that if you look at the Omicron, it is very, very clear that the protection that you get from a boost if your original regimen was an mRNA, two shots of an mRNA, it's extremely important to get that third shot boost. So you'd be uh, happy to hear that we're 95% double vaxxed and about 70% boosted? That's a good thing? That's a really good thing. In fact, you're doing better than we're doing here at the United States. We have about 65% of the total population vaccinated fully, about 70 plus per 75 percent having received at least one dose. We here in the United States need to do a bit better with regard to vaccinations to begin with, but also with regard to boosters. At the beginning of this, uh, our Prime Minister, we went hard and early and locked down, but Omicron seems to have changed the game. Some countries, governments are choosing to live with the virus. China is now locking down again, which in your view, is the right response? You know, one of the issues with locking down is that if you're going to lock down, locking down is for two purposes. One is if you're overwhelming your healthcare system. The second reason is to give you time enough mm. to get your citizens vaccinated and boosted. Again, mm. it depends on utilizing a lockdown 
in a positive way as opposed to just thinking you're going to hide from the virus forever. That does not work. And I think China has experienced that and Hong Kong because they were very much restricted in what they did. And now that Omicron is back in full force, they're having a terrible time. New variants are going to come, and the, the WHA, the World Health Organization, has just outlined sort of three paths forward, sort of like mild, medium and bad. Which one do you expect? Yeah, I think that's completely unpredictable. We have no way of knowing, and I think the, the history of our two-plus-year experience with SARS-CoV-2 has taught us a lesson and it's a difficult lesson. We cannot predict exactly what the next variant is. What we can do, and this is important because it requires a global response, the more proportion of the population of the world that you get vaccinated, the less the virus will have the capability of freely circulating throughout the world. Yep. And when yep. you contain that, you give the virus less of an opportunity to mutate enough to get a new variant. So that's one of the reasons why we all, all the nations of the world, particularly those who have more resources than others, should pull together to try and get the entire world vaccinated and not have some countries that have very, very low percentage of their population vaccinated. Dr Fauci, given the slowness at the beginning of the pandemic, should the World Health Organization be reformed? Well, I think the World Health Organization uh, is better now than it was before. We could always get improvements in the WHO. We need a WHO. I think the idea of not having a WHO is a very bad idea. We've, we need a WHO. We certainly need to strengthen it, and we could do it probably by giving them more resources and looking within them to see how they can improve their function. They're a good organization, but they certainly can do better. We've seen a world of disinformation around COVID-19. Science has become political. You've been caught up into this, up in this. How do we fix it? How do you make science boring again? Boy, that would be something I would really welcome, <laughs> uh, for sure. Right now, unfortunately, there's a degree of divisiveness in many respects throughout the world. We're seeing it very intensively in the United States. And unfortunately, that does interfere with an optimal response to the outbreak. There has been a trend towards anti-science. There has been a normalization of just untruths and conspiracy theories and things like that. I guess the only way to counter that is to get as much correct information out in a way that people can understand it. Mm. Social media can have a positive effect by spreading good, true, and important and helpful information. But unfortunately, social media can be an amplifier of things that are not true and things that are very misleading. And I'm not sure exactly 
how we can effectively counter that, but it is a real problem that I think is getting worse. Yes, I mean, you've been characterised as a hero and a villain. Um, <laughs> we've got our own sort of Dr Fauci here. His name is Ashley Bloomfield. Like you, he's experienced the same kind of thing. What's sort of one piece of advice that you would give him? I think that uh, to, to do what I'm trying to do is to continue to bring forth information based on facts and on evidence and to not be put aback by attacks from people who are attacking you merely because you're telling things to the public that are true. There's nothing that I've said that is out of line with very good public health practices. And yet there has been a pushback against that, which you're right in many respects, people who understand what I'm talking about think highly of me and people somehow who think for one reason or other, they I'm, I'm encroaching on their liberty and I'm not. I have no power to encroach on anybody's liberty. I can only make recommendations based on good public health principles. But unfortunately, we get attacked for that, which is really, I think, interfering with the broader optimal response to the outbreak. Just sort of wrapping up, two years in, we still don't know how this pandemic started. So, based on the evidence that you have now, what is the most likely origin? Yeah, there have been a number of, pay of studies, good scholarly studies that have come out over the last several months that strongly indicate that this is a natural occurrence from an animal host to a human, likely the bat being the original and then infecting animals that were, were, I think, inappropriately put into a wet market in Wuhan. There's always the question, was this a lab leak from things that were being done in laboratories? You want to keep an open mind, and we all should keep an open mind on that. But I think when you look at the weight of the evidence that's accumulating now, it's much more likely that it was a natural occurrence. All right. You say it's very hard to predict, but will we ever know when this pandemic is over? You know, uh, I think we will know when the pandemic is over, a pandemic in which you're essentially disrupting the entire social order of the world, economically, personally, from the standpoint of how you lead your lives. Right now, in the United States and in many other countries, as a pandemic, with uncontrolled spread, it has certainly gone down to a level that is less than it was a year or so ago. However, what I believe will happen is that we're not going to eradicate this virus. We've only eradicated one human viral pathogen in history, to our knowledge, and that's smallpox, which was done with a very extensive global vaccination campaign. When you're dealing with a highly transmissible virus like SARS-CoV-2, I don't think we're going to eradicate or eliminate, but I think we can get it to the level of control where it doesn't really significantly interfere with our function as a society. And that's where I hope we are going in that direction. And I believe the more people that get vaccinated and boosted, we will reach a point where it is not eliminated completely, but it is at such a low level that we can get on with leading normal lives the way we did 
prior to the pandemic. And when that occurs, I hope it's much sooner rather than later, but I'm not 100% sure when that is. We have to see whether or not we're going to get any future surges. And that will depend, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, on whether or not we get another variant that escapes the protection that we get from vaccination and or from prior infection. Dr. Fauci, thank you very much for your time. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Fauci there. Uh, on a side note, News Hub Nation has been asking for an interview with Dr. Ashley Bloomfield since August 2020. That's 19 months of regular invitations, and we look forward to him accepting one soon. So if you've got a news tip, get in touch with us. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Or you can email us at nation at tv3.co.nz. If I can the week in politics with our panel, Patrick Gower and Tracy Watkins. Plus, is Minister Carmel Sepuloni delivering on promises of transformation in her portfolios? Waihape my welcome back. Benefit increases kicked in this week, but with surging inflation and rising rents, how far will they go? The government says it's fulfilling its promise to give people an adequate standard of living, but critics say not even close. So I asked Social Development Minister Carmel Cipollone whether it's too little, too late. Well, when you look at the benefit increases from April to April this year, we're talking about 13 to 30% uh, increases. And so that exceeds what the inflationary increases that we've seen. That doesn't mean that there's not families struggling, uh, but it certainly hasn't been, or the advantage of them hasn't been eaten up by the inflationary increases. Right, OK. So the Fairer Futures Group came out this week and said that they did their calculations. We're just going to take one couple on the job seeker benefit with two kids actually need $307 a week to participate in society. You're giving them $168 total. There's a big difference. There is a difference, uh, but with regards to their figures, they're talking about a particular group of people living in a particular part of country. So it does depend on what different families' costs are, where they live, what their housing costs are, a range of different things. Uh, we are playing a bit of a catch-up game after much inaction over many years. Yeah, I know, so but, but that is, you know, you've been in for five years. We can't go back and blame National now. I mean, you, the, you've had the report, the ball is in your court. Are you delivering? I think we are delivering. These are significant increases. Uh, they are above what the WEAG had recommended with respect to families on benefit with children. Uh, and there are other things that we are doing as a government that helps to address poverty as well. Sure. Um, so they're above, you know, you're saying you met the WEAG report, the Welfare Expert Advisory Group, uh, sort of, you know, recommendation in one area, but you haven't fully implemented all their recommendations at all, have you? Well, the thing is with those recommendations is a lot of them are not tick box and they're done. There's ongoing work required. Uh, but we have done a lot, Simon, you know, increasing benefits, lifting abatement thresholds, yep. lifting working for families credits, reinstating the training incentive allowance, investing in upskilling okay. and training programs. There's a lot That's there. a long list. Have you implemented fully even one of them? Fully, even one of them. Well, mm. income adequacy, I don't think that we could ever fully address. Uh, it's something that is ongoing and we need yeah, to but just, one, just one of them, like in terms of sanctions, you have moved one sanction, but not all the sanctions recommended. Have you implemented fully one of those? I think that it would be oversimplifying that report to say that you can just check something off and it's done. And I don't think that that was their intention. I actually think that when they wrote the report, they expected systems change and progressive 
action to ensure that we're continually working for families, and we are. Transformative was a phrase used by the Prime Minister when you came to power and by yourself. Do you believe you are being transformative? I do. Uh, but transformation doesn't happen overnight. It's about a series of deliberate steps uh, that bring about the progress and the change that you want. And we have been absolutely committed from the start, from the families package through to the benefit increases that we're doing now. Uh, but there's more to do. And, and we've got, we're committed to that overhaul. And that's a program of work. It's not one action. So is this it for net core benefit increases under this government this term? I think we need to be very clear it's not just about increasing benefits, Yeah, Simon. OK, but let's just talk about net core benefits. Is this it under this government this term? Look, I'm not going to preempt what is in and out or out on our programme, but I will say they were significant benefit increases. It's not the only action that we will be taking uh, to address income adequacy, uh, to, to respond to and address poverty in this country. Uh, but I'll also say it doesn't just come down to benefit increases. It is about things like making public transport, uh, transport affordable, healthcare affordable, education affordable, yeah. uh, about making sure people have access to food. There are a range of things, that, public housing, a range of things that need to happen. So it's an all-of-government program. Sure. It's not so just about the welfare In terms system. of access to food, I mean, the Salvation Army has told me that their food bank demand or food parcel demand is rising. is still 30% above pre-COVID levels. And that's at the same time as the WEAG calculated these benefit levels. So, again, does that mean that these increases are out of date? Well, keep in mind with the, the food bank demands, we, we are still in the midst of COVID. There's a big program going on to ensure that we can get food to whanau so they can self-isolate safely as well. So it's as much a response to the social needs as what it is the health needs at the moment. So we're in a very different time because of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and so I do think we need to keep it in context. OK. Can't blame the pandemic totally, though. No, I wouldn't blame the, the pandemic uh, for everything. There are issues and challenges that we're all faced with that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, and there's certainly a, a response that's had to be initiated or, or done on, on top of everything else because of the pandemic. And, and so some of that demand that we're seeing at the food banks is because of the, the need to support families to be able to self-isolate safely. Is there a real disconnect here because... You've got record low unemployment at the moment. Employers are crying out for skilled and unskilled workers. Yet you've got 100,000 people on JobSeeker who are ready to work, many of them long-term beneficiaries. Are you failing to lift these people up into work? Uh, well, no. This, the problem has been that over the years, actually, there's been a number of people that haven't been supported to upskill and train to get into the jobs that that are available in the labour market. And so we hear it all the time from different sectors that they don't have the right people with the right skills to be able to take on the jobs. Mm. We've invested heavily in this space uh, through a, a myriad of programmes, whether it be Manara Mahi, our Apprenticeship Boost Programme, FlexiWage. We actually need to support people to get the skills that they need to be able to go into the jobs that are available. Sure. Are the people that are in those programmes just, you know, short-term beneficiaries? What about the people that are sort of stuck on job seeker, what are you doing for them, targeting them to lift them into the workplace? Well, keep it in perspective. Two years after the GFC, 13.1% of the working age population was on benefit. Two years after the pandemic started, we're at 11.1% of the working age population. It's not excessive given what we've gone through. 
Uh, but our investment is in making sure that people can get the skills to match the labour market. And that investment wasn't there before we got in, Simon, so it's going to take a little bit of time. All right, let's move on to another portfolio. You are the Minister for Disability Issues. The disability allowance is $66 a week, and that's rising by less than $4 a week in this raft of changes. One advocate told me that this is an extra bottle of milk for a community that has many extra costs. Are you happy with that level of increase? I think we keeping in, in mind that many or not a lot of people that are on benefit have health conditions or disabilities. So mm. there's the increase to the disability allowance that is adjusted through CPI, but they'll also benefit from the increases to benefits uh, and the range of other supports that we have in place. If they've got children, the family uh, tax credit on top of that. The, this um, population is growing and if they tell us that they've sort of been pushed to one side, they're not receiving enough now. Now you've got a new ministry coming in July. What do you need to give them an adequate standard of living? Well, I think the point that we've got a new ministry um, really speaks to what you're saying, is actually we need the machine in place to be able to have oversight of um, making sure that we're making the progress we need to for disabled people. You know, we've got that, we've got the accessibility legislation coming up, we're transferring disability support services from the health system into the new ministry and rolling out the Enabling Good Lives programme, uh, recognising that for far too long progress has been slow for disabled people, yeah. but we haven't had the machinery in place to actually get the progress is, that we need. Is that machinery going to help with one of the most pressing issues, which is housing. And now as cities intensify, accessibility is going to be an even bigger issue. So what sort of pressure are you putting on, say, Housing Minister Megan Woods to get accessibility into the building code? Well, I mean, if we just look at the public housing build, there was no uh, kind of target in place with regards to the number of houses that would be accessible uh, until we got into government. And that's something that we're continuing to so work. So that's the public housing build. In terms of a broader thing of the building code, I mean, could you give us a date by when you're going to say we can get accessibility to be taken into account in the building code to well, ensure accessibility. I, I certainly want to, wouldn't want to speak too much on someone else's portfolio. The but you can pressure her. The accessibility legislation and the way that it's setting it up will help us to ensure that in crucial areas like that we can actually uh, hold accountable the agencies to ensure that they are doing the work to make the progress with respect to When does to that legislation come in? The legislation will be introduced to the House in July this year uh, and should be passed about a year after, so next year. Okay. Another area that you're responsible are the uh, changes to Oranga Tamariki, new legislation to how Oranga Tamariki is going to be scrutinised. And critics say that this legislation is going to gut the office of the Children's Commissioner, who has been a vocal advocate for our most vulnerable. So why do it? Uh, the... the the actual legislation is about tightening up and ensuring that we have better monitoring in place with regards to uh, state care of our children. Mm. I think everyone accepts that uh, there hasn't been the oversight that is needed. Uh, we're not in any way undermining... Is that independent oversight or is that the oversight within the organisation itself? Well, there's, there's independent oversight that we need to have that in place. Now, it's not undermining the, the Office for the Children's Commissioner, it's actually building on it. Māori groups that I've spoken with say that they're concerned that this independence of the Children's Commissioner is being taken away or diluted and that this monitoring is going closer to the Crown, which is sort of in defiance of what the Waitangi Tribunal said. No, they'll still have their independence. 
Uh, if, if the independent monitor decides to uh, do, undertake any uh, type of work, the Crown can't tell the independent monitor they can't look into this or they can't monitor these particular things. What the Crown will be able to do in the way that we're setting up is actually add to the work programme and say, can you look at this for us as well? Uh, which actually I think is, is something that, that enhances that power and is really important for the children uh, that the system is in place for. Yeah, just finally, let's talk about the children. I mean, it's not your portfolio, but five 500 children and young people were abused in the care of OT in 20 to 21. That's a report out this week. Worst figures since OT started reporting them. It seems that you know, they have the scrutiny there. It's just that the system needs to be fixed, not necessarily the, the monitoring of it. I mean, is this a waste of time? It is not a waste of time. The monitoring mechanism holds the system to account uh, and ensures we can see uh, where there are gaps or where there are, there are failings. Uh, I actually stand by uh, the decisions we're making with regards to the independent monitor, uh, monitor versus the advocacy role of the Children's Commission versus the investigative role of the Ombudsman. I think it's really powerful that you have those three arms will working. This, will these changes ensure better outcomes for these children under OT? We wouldn't be doing this if we didn't think that this was the best way to go about ensuring that, Simon. Minister Cipollone, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Taruake, up next, the news and politics of the week with our panel Tracy Watkins and Patrick Gower. Plus, Helen Clark's takes on Fauci, Cipollone and China in the Pacific. Waihape Mai, welcome back. Former Prime Minister and former head of the UN Development Programme, Helen Clark, was watching our interviews with Dr Anthony Fauci and Minister Carmel Sepuloni, and she joins us now. Helen Clark, at the Marie, welcome to the programme. Great to have you. Dr Fauci said in the interview, uh, the US is focusing on boosters. Do you think it's wise to rely less on other measures like masks and uh, contact tracing? I think you need a comprehensive range of measures. And, and it is concerning that something like a million Kiwis who could be having the booster haven't had it yet. I, I'd really urge everybody to go and get that booster because the chances of getting seriously ill uh, are so much less if, if you have that. But you still need complementary measures. I, I, for one, will certainly be putting a mask on for the foreseeable future, and that could be uh, some years when I venture out, because as Dr. Fauci said, this isn't about to go away. Mm -hmm. It will come in leaps and bounds. It will come in waves. At some point, we'll look back and say, maybe that was the point when the pandemic ended, but we don't know when we'll be able to say that. Yes. And he also said that the US was learning uh, on the job during this whole pandemic. Was Do you believe that's good enough? So the world was confronted with a novel coronavirus. You know, as of the end of December uh, 2019, no one had heard of this thing. We didn't know much more by the time the WHO declared uh, the public health emergency of international concern. We've always been learning on the run. Think of our own experience here in New Zealand. We conquer the first wave. Then we're whacked by Delta. Actually, we did an incredible job with Delta. We pretty near got rid of it. And then this Omicron yeah. came that just ran through a vaccine barriers. But what we learned was if you're boosted, it's not going to do as much harm, but we don't have enough people boosted. I think a key point Dr. Fauci made is that we have to get the world vaccinated and boosted 
because that limits transmission along with other uh, measures like masking and, and so on. And it's not till we curb transmission that we can really decisively see an end to the pandemic phase. Mm. You've criticised the pandemic response uh, response from the WHO. Is it too bogged down by bureaucracy or is it a leadership issue? What our panel said, and we were an official panel mandated uh, by the World Health Assembly, was that the WHO was underpowered and under-resourced for the job. It wasn't that they didn't want to do the best job, they did but they didn't have the powers. They didn't have the powers to get straight to Wuhan at the start of the uh, pandemic. They didn't have the powers to publish information that they had without consent of the, uh, the country that had it. They didn't feel empowered to use a precautionary approach and say, this is a, a respiratory uh, uh, pathogen. It, it, it could have pandemic potential. You know, there are a whole lot of things there where we said they need more powers. Now, the World Health Assembly is in the process of negotiating around these things. But can we be optimistic in the current geopolitical environment that it will be possible to give the WHO new powers? That's the challenge right now. Like you say, and like Dr Fauci said, uh, that we could be years off the end of this pandemic. We are, though, in a cost-of-living escalation. Do you feel optimistic for New Zealanders? Look, I'm always optimistic because I say that life is too short to be pessimistic <laughs> and we're a long time uh, dead. But look, these are challenging times globally. As if the pandemic weren't enough, as if the climate crisis uh, growing uh, weren't enough, as if there weren't all sorts of other crises. And then along comes Ukraine. And, and of course, ju just as security crises, crises in Europe and World War One and Two ended up being global crises. This is a global crisis with bills on because we're so interconnected, because Russia is such a big oil and gas supplier, Ukraine is such a big food supplier. You disrupt all of that mm. and you have major problems. There'll be world hunger out of this uh, this Ukraine uh, crisis and not being able to get their crops in and mm. out and out to market. Uh, so we're at the, you know, the, the chain end of this probably somewhere in our bread is, is wheat from Ukraine. Right. Or, or, or if it's not from Ukraine, others are going to have to be buying from where we were buying from in order to, to get supply. While we're so talking about Ukraine, you've been to Chernobyl. You've met Putin several times, as we understand. This isn't going as Putin wished. How do you think the war is going to end? So th there is some thinking that Russia will want to say something by its uh, victory day, victory over Nazi Germany, on the 9th of May. Uh, it's, it's not going to end well for anyone. There's so many dead on both sides. And, of course, for Ukraine, it's just an incredible tragedy of loss of life, injury, dislocation, refugees, uh, infrastructure destroyed. So the issue is where this conflict gets frozen. And when you look at those maps, as we all do, it, it seems that Russia is trying to move uh, what it had previously occupied in Crimea and the eastern Ukraine, trying to move that line west uh, and then, in effect, uh, occupy that. This is very sad for Ukraine, and no Ukrainian president can say goodbye to that territory. But the immediate aim, I think, must be to freeze the conflict where, where it is, if you can, it may be 
that the resolution of it is longer in the making. I'm conscious that the Korean War was never settled. There was an armistice in 1953 and never a peace agreement. Well, let's hope it doesn't take that long. But stop the fighting now has to be the objective. Now. On the topic of foreign affairs, let's talk about the draft security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands. How concerned are you about China's advances? Well, I think the whole Pacific really needs to address this. And I see Nanaya Mahuta has uh, been saying that the Pacific family needs to discuss it, the Pacific Island foreign ministers and no doubt leaders. Uh, because, you know, traditionally there's been a rallying in the Pacific uh, when the Solomon Islands very specifically is in trouble. It wasn't just New Zealand and Australia that went in that regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands known as Ramsey. Every Pacific state contributed to that. Realistically, the Solomon Islands faces no outside threat. Uh, so this uh, arrangement it seeks to enter into with China is A, unnecessary, but B, brings a, a new element in to Pacific security, which, which frankly isn't desirable. So the Pacific Island Forum needs to address it as a whole. Helen Clark, thank you very much for your time. E mihi ana kia koe. E haere tonu nei, still to come, a power-packed political panel with Patrick Gower and Tracy Watkins. Plus, it ain't easy being blue-green. What's National's plan for climate change? Kia ora mai anō. I'm joined now by our panel, Sunday Star Times editor Tracy Watkins and News Hub's national correspondent Patrick Gower. Morena Korua, welcome to the programme. Morena. Hello. Patty, let's start with you. Sepuloni, Kamau Sepuloni says the government has been transformative, has it? Uh, well, the government uh, wanted to be transformative. I don't think the overall government has been anywhere near as transformative as it wanted to be. Kamau Sepuloni. Uh, in her portfolio, as she was talking there in an excellent interview, um, by the way. Um, I guess it's your definition of transformative, but what you can say is she has been out-transformed by world events. Um, normally, the kind of stuff that she's talking about would be a big deal, but the fact of the matter is it's come headlong, uh, head-on, actually, into a cost-of-living crisis driven um, by, by world events, and it doesn't look... Uh, anywhere near enough, given the current given the current context. So, if she thinks she's been transformative, she has been out transformed by world events and the cost of living crisis. Mm, Tracy Sepuloni says inflation won't eat into the rise in benefits, but lobby groups disagree. Is the government out of touch? Look, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think most people would say the impact on my income at the moment or on my benefit feels much bigger than the amount she's talking about. I mean, you've only got to fill up your car, you've only got to go to the supermarket to know that there's been a dramatic increase in prices. I guess flattened out over the entire basket of things that they use, it might not seem that way. I think one of the things they've done that will probably have more impact than anything, particularly around those sort of I hate using the word, but the, the sort of like the working poor and, and, and there's such a large group of them is something like, you know, the, the cut to public transport fares, which is making a huge difference to people. If you talk about a difference between $120 a week and $60 a week, mm. which is what I've heard some people talking about. Those very targeted measures are having an impact. Overall, I don't think what they've announced on the benefits will have a dramatic impact. And also we have to ask why in times of such low record unemployment, there's still so many people dependent on those benefits. Mm, Patty, yeah, how much I, will I the thought... cost... 
Sorry, go ahead. I Eddie. thought that, that was, uh, you know, right at the centre of the interview. 100,000 people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, still on the job seeker benefit in these times where we've actually had zero immigration. We've had zero immigration and we still can't find a way um, to get those people into work with immigration about to start up again uh, in the imminent future. And that, to, to me, to my mind, is a failing uh, on all governments to have 100,000 people like that unable to find jobs. So how much do you think, Paddy, that the uh, cost of living will factor into the next election? It's going to be huge. Uh, it's going to be huge at this level. And what you're seeing here at this level is cost of living um, colliding with inequality. Um, but I think once you start to shift that cost of living debate out and into the mortgage bout, now you've got to look at the fact that we have had a relatively um, stable mortgage um, mortgage bout for many, many years, dating right back to when Helen Clark was Prime Minister. This will be the first election where we see people in the mortgage bout actually getting hit hard by interest rates. And I'll tell you a stat that came out this week that really stood out to me politically. House, house prices in Mount Roskill are dropping. You've got rising interest rates, house prices in Auckland, right in the, Mount Roskill is the home of the centre voter. House prices are dropping as well. You're looking at an election where you're going in with an international cost of living crisis combined um, with mortgage rates, interest and potentially falling house prices. We have not seen an election like that in New Zealand for a long time. Cost of living will be right at the heart of it. Tracy, Dr Anthony Fauci has become a polarising figure. We had him on earlier in the show. Republicans have cast him as the opposition. Have we avoided that, though, with Dr Ashley Bloomfield? Um, we have, but we're still seeing the issue become polarising, but with a much smaller subset. I thought the interesting thing around uh, his conversation was that idea that, you know, Elimination, it's just forget it. You can't hide away from this forever. I think most people uh, that I sp speak to now are very conscious of, the, of that and are very much in tune with that thought, although there's still a very small group of people who might still believe in elimination. But I think New Zealand, we have moved on such a lot in the last six months. And Patty, what are your thoughts on Dr Fauci's cordial there that we're not going to eliminate or, or eradicate uh, this disease, COVID? And do you think New Zealand is ready to accept that fact right now? Look, we have, and if there are some people um, out there, like Tracy says, and I know there's probably a couple, they've got to get over it. Um, as you saw, you know, we've got to get used to a life with masks. We're going to have to get used to a life um, where, where there are peaks and troughs of this thing. We're going to have to get used to used to it being part of our lives. And, and actually, I was pretty gutted uh, watching Dr Fauci because I, I wanted him to say something different. I'm sure everybody watching it as well wanted him to say something different. What were you um, expecting but it's, or it's hoping? Here with us. <laughs> but you know it's it's with us and it's and it's and it's here to stay and and to be honest if we can if we can deal with it like we're dealing with it at the moment you know things aren't too bad and it, and it, and it does seem it does seem like something that we can put up with as much as as much as I hate to say it I want to talk about the co-governance uh, issue that's been floating around for the last week or so. Uh, Tracy, the government is talking about uh, consulting on co-governance. How will that look? Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing. I think, um, and Paddy probably might have followed these too, Tony Wall, one of our reporters, has done a series of articles around co-governance in, in the Yorawera National Park. Um, and what has happened is sort of like uh, such a different 
uh, uh, view of, of the path forward that it's, it's translated into paralysis in terms of sort of fixing a lot of uh, decaying conservation structures and, and visitor structures there in the park. I think where it's going to be, where, where it's going to be difficult is where the two sides might have a very different idea on what consultation means. You know, it doesn't mean a right of veto. And certainly I think that's where you could see some real uh, conflict between the two groups eventuating. If it turns out the consultation, one group thinks, well, that's just lip service and, mm. and, 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 and how far it goes into also being able to say, no, we don't agree. Patty, do you think the government's risks, um, taking a huge risk by opening it up to everyone, including those who have little to no understanding of what co-governance actually is? No, they have to do it, and it's been too late. It's, this um, co-government's debate um, has for too long been defined by people other than the government. I mean, the government needs to get in and start filling in some of the details here so that people can understand what it actually, actually is. I mean, if you're going to have any kind of meaningful co-governance in Aotearoa, New Zealand, you need to have the public on board. And in fact, it needs to go through an election and you need to really sell it to the public. And that's what um, this Labor government hasn't been doing. Everybody else has been defining it for them. And Tracy's right. I mean, I, I, would, I can't wait... Uh, until we start to debate some of the nuts and bolts of it and what happens in a situation um, where you have a highly innovative co-governance co model, like in Te Uruera, um, when it starts to fall down. What, what are we going to do when that happens? I mean, people, want, people need to understand the nuts and bolts of it and the government needs to sell it to everybody in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Ultimately, to me, co-governance co means enhancing the mana of everybody in this country. The only way that you can do it is if everybody in the country understands what it actually is rather than having two sides mm. um, firing at each other. Well, when you sell it like that, Patty Gower, I'm convinced. <laughs> well, or Tracy, David Seymour believes Labor is trying to make New Zealand an unequal society on purpose. Māori would argue we always have been an unequal society, but would co-governance, how would co-governance disadvantage Pākehā or non-Māori? Well, it doesn't, but this is the same argument that's been going on since about 2004 with Don Brash's Aurira uh, uh, speech, which basically um, scratched the same itch around you are being disadvantaged, Pakia New Zealanders are being disadvantaged by the fact that Māori, are, you know, that the government's trying to address Māori uh, disadvantage. Um, it plays into, I mean, it's, it's a very well-worn book, this one that David Seymour is um is reading at the moment. We've seen Winston Peters do it, National Under Don Brash and others. So, so yeah, I, I don't think there's anything particularly new about what he's talking about. Tina, you know, Tracy. The, the, yeah. the question that David Seymour needs to needs to answer is this: Why, if a multi child is born, um, um, like like in the house next door to me, why do they live for seven years less than the one, than the child born in this house? And when we can find a model that can that can answer questions like that or seeks to answer questions like that and sell that to the New Zealand public, these kind of arguments that David Seymour and the like are going to pick it up are going to be null and void. And that is the challenge for the Labour Party. Yes. Thank you both so much for your time this morning. We'll leave it there. Ngā mihi, Patrick Gower and Tracy Watkins. Tai Heidi. Stay with us. We're back after the break.
Hukimayano, welcome back. The UN will release its latest climate report on Monday, and we already know Aotearoa isn't doing enough. But one of National's new senior advisers says further climate policies are a waste of time. So, is the party quietly backtracking on its climate commitments? Senior reporter Connor Witten sat down with climate change spokesperson Scott Simpson and asked if the party still supports the zero carbon bill. Absolutely. We voted for the zero carbon bill. In fact, the bill at its final reading at stage three passed in the parliament without dissent. I think that's really significant. So there is bipartisan agreement, both sides of the house. We need to get to net zero by 2050. The question then is how we get there. I need to ask you, you have a new economics advisor, Matt Burgess. He says we don't need any new climate policies. Do you agree? Um, he wrote a report for his previous employer, the New Zealand Initiative. The New Zealand Initiative is not the National Party, and the report he wrote does not reflect the National Party's view. So you don't agree? We do need climate policies? Well, of course we need climate policies. Um, and the uh, legislation that we voted for and supported, which was largely based on the model in the United Kingdom, uh, is designed specifically so that we set up an independent commission, a climate commission, independent experts who advise the government of the day on what the budget should be towards uh, uh, net zero and also a range of policy options. But the legislation specifically ensures that Parliament is sovereign and it's the politicians of the day that make the decisions to either accept, reject or modify the advice that comes from the Commission. That's it, as it should be in a democracy. So the reason we're asking, the reason this is important, is you have an advisor suggesting something that doesn't line up with your policy. So. Is there a tension within National about how to handle this? No, not at all, not at all. Um, there is a, a wide debate uh, amongst our society, which is, as I said, is healthy and good in a functioning democracy, about how we achieve the pathway to net zero. We've got a different view to the current government, for instance, about the fee-bate scheme. We think that that's not a particularly well-targeted scheme. We think that that is essentially a reverse Robin Hood, where those people who have few choices and little option and can least afford to pay are forced to pay to subsidise people who do have options and do have choice and can afford it. I don't think that's particularly fair. I think there are better, better models and better targeting that could be done. OK, so what are they? What would you do? Well, one of the things that we could do in that area is, for instance, is make sure that we have a, an EV network that is uh, able to be charged. Now, I'm sitting here talking to you and my EV's in the car park charging up while we're talking. That kind of approach is going to become more and more common as we go. But we need, have to have the network, there have to be the chargers. So uh, people will make the change towards low emission vehicles because it's the right thing to do, and increasingly because it is the financially sensible thing to do. That's only part of the solution, of course, there's a whole range of things. One of the things we can do is, uh, rather than reduce our emissions, we can offset them. Basically, that means planting lots more trees. Now, that is deeply unpopular with farmers. We could get there by 2050, but it would mean one in 10 farms are converted to pine. 
Yeah. Is that a good idea? Well, look, we will have to plant some trees, but we've got lots of land in New Zealand where we could be planting trees that is not good productive pastoral farmland. Uh, and yes, farmers are concerned about it, and so they, so they should be. Do we need to plant trees? Absolutely. But it's a question of where we plant the trees and which trees we plant. So that's another debate that has to be had. Now, there's not a lot of point uh, for the planet and for the globe if we lower our emissions here by simply piggybacking on the hard work of other countries. The objective of the legislation is to decarbonise our economy and get there by making behavioural change in the way we live, do business and uh, exist as a society. One of those changes the Climate Change Commission says that we have to make is we need fewer cows. Do you agree? Uh, well, uh, just having fewer cows doesn't actually help the world either. Uh, climate change doesn't recognise it or have any respect for international boundaries. So if we reduce New Zealand's already very environmentally uh, efficient and carbon efficient farming and have that international um, marketplace filled by product produced by less efficient farmers, then the net benefit to the world uh, is none. So there has to be other ways. So one of the things that uh, a re-elected national government is going to be doing is putting a lot more effort into finding solutions to the biogenic methane issue, not only just for New Zealand. But National's we been that, talking about that for over a decade and the yeah. solutions still aren't there yet. Is well, this pie in the sky? Uh, no, well, we, we have to find a solution because actually the rest of the world is hoping that we will. There won't be one single solution to biogenic methane, but there are a range of options, many of them are looking promising, and I'm an optimist. I think that much of the challenge that confronts us in climate will ultimately be solved by human ingenuity and new technology. Should farmers pay for their emissions? Uh, we've got a view at the moment that uh, farms or that agriculture should not be included in the ETS. It's our biggest emitter. Uh, it is our, well, it's, it's our biggest methane emitter and what uh, we've taken that view is, is that until farmers have the tools that enable them to reduce their emissions, they should be excluded. Now that's to one side, so that's sort of first principle. At the moment the government is currently in partnership with the agricultural sector on Iwakanoa. Now, uh, we're expecting to see the results of that partnership, all the consultations, all the discussions. We're expecting to see that, I think, in early May. Uh, and once the sector has come to a unified consensus view, we'll want to have a look at that. And I'd be very surprised if the National Party doesn't support the consensus view of the ag sector. National's always been the party of farmers. Are you prepared to get them to pay their share if that's what it takes to meet our targets? I think that there is an increasing understanding in the rural sector, in the primary sector, that we all have to do our bit. Uh, and, and I think that there is a changing mood around that stuff. But let's wait and see what the Iwakanoa uh, Pro Partnership uh, comes up with. Uh, it, would be, it would be silly to try and preempt that at this stage. National Party Climate Change Spokesperson Scott Simpson, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Scott Simpson there. Uh, before we go, we'd just like to pass on our condolences to the whānau of esteemed Māori lawyer, Dr Moana Jackson, who passed away this week. E te tātā ariki, hoa tūra, ko rua, ko tōtua, hine, ko tā kahurangi, uh, ko kahurangi hune, o tira koutou, ko tā wira, ki miriumiru i te pō, e tangi atu nei ki a koutou, haere, haere, haere atura. 
And that is all from us for now. But thank you so much for watching. Kia hai marute haere. Be safe and we'll see you next weekend. This show was brought to you by the New Zealand On Air Public Interest Journalism Fund.